So, we continue on in this beautiful book known as the Psalms. And what's interesting, in the, if you were Jewish, you would recognize this book not as the book of Psalms. It's actually in Hebrew called the book of praises, which is very interesting because, as we've said, lots of, lots of the Psalms are, are kind of angry, uh, a lot of lament and, and sorrow, uh, but... Uh, as we'll see even today in one of the most challenging psalms, this is a psalm of praise at the very end of the day. But you have to look real closely to see that. And so I hope that you'll see that today, that this is, uh, at the end of the day, uh, something of a praise to who God is, his character, his goodness, even in the midst of very difficult times. So, uh, before we get into it, I just want to start by stirring you up a little bit. So I just want to tell you that this is what I'm going to do. Uh, my hope is to, to get your blood boiling a little bit. And if you've been around Sedaris, you know I call this, uh, I'm going to try to boil your onions, okay? <laughs> Write that down. Got you, Nolan. Yeah. So um, I'm going to just say some words that I'm hoping will trigger you. Okay, so, so don't read into these words. Just let, let your blood boil, let your onions boil a little bit here as, we, uh, as, I, as I say some words because uh, it's important to get ourselves into the frame of mind that the psalmist here, who is King David, uh, where he's at as he's writing it. I want you to get there because if you don't get there, at least you're not going to get all the way there, but if you don't start to get there, you won't fully appreciate uh, how amazing this psalm truly is. And, and the other thing I'll say before I do this, because this is probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable and um, not pleasant when I just throw these trigger words at you. <laughs> You're like, why would you do that at church? Well, my view of church is not that church is a place, uh, it's not like a nature hike, you know, uh, with a really wise uncle. It's, it's something different than that. Church is a place where you're meant to be challenged and you're meant to be pushed and you're meant to, to grow. So this might seem unpleasant, but it's actually meant to be helpful, but you've got to stick with me, okay? So there's my, I had to say that before because I don't want you reading it. These are just words that I thought would make your blood boil, okay? So we'll see if it happens. Here we go. First word, ready? McDonald's. Next word. Sustainable. Next word. Maybe. Planned Parenthood. Big Oil. Middle School. Whew. That was a rough one. Islam. NPR. Frat Boys. Obamacare. Facebook. Walmart. Politician. Lamborghini, I share that one, got a little story behind this one. Our very own Sarah Carnes told me a story this week that she saw uh, a Lamborghini on fire, <laughs> parked on the side of the road, and most everybody that walked by was snickering, smiling, and genuinely excited <laughs> that this Lamborghini <laughs> was on fire. Lamborghinis make some onions boil. Ready? Next word. Church. 
Maybe that's you. Gym class. Organic. Bud Light. H&M. Your onions beginning to boil? Are you feeling some of the tension that these words, and there's many more. These are just some that I threw down on the list. I got one more, if, you, if you're not upset yet, that many of you, not all of you, but many of you might, this might work, this might help. Trump. It's important that we reacquaint ourselves with this feeling, this anger that sometimes is associated with these sorts of things. Maybe there's a friend in your life who, when you think of them, they just, just makes you so upset. Maybe a past relationship, maybe an experience that you've had. And the point is, is that we're going to experience something in the psalm today that, that most of us have, have experienced in our own lives. We're going to see a very human man crying out to God. Crying out against his enemies. And, and this is going to be one of those psalms. We talked about that in the intro, if you were here. That you're going you're to hear the psalm, if you haven't read it already. And you're going to wonder, how in the heck did this get in the Bible? Because it's pretty gnarly. Some of the things. And, and I, wanna, I want to tell you that yes, this is written by a real, authentic human being. Who himself, his name was David, is called the man after God's own heart. So this is a picture that the people of God have looked to this man as this is a truly godly man, and you're going to see the, the words that come out of his mouth. So it's, it's written by a real human being, and it's also fully inspired by God himself. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is God-breathed text. I'm going to hopefully show you how that's true of this very interesting psalm. And what we're going to see is that this is raw, emotional words. And God puts his stamp on it. And this psalm, like all the other psalms, is going to teach us how to pray. And you're going to be very interested in how we learn to pray from this psalm. But I think at the end of it, you're going to become a fan of this psalm. As I've studied it this week, I've become a fan. Even though this is one of the psalms, just to know the history, that the theologians, biblical scholars, have debated, maybe we should just take this one out of the Bible because it's so hard to understand how these could be words from God. So this psalm is one of what, what they call imprecatory psalms. There's four of them. An imprecation is a calling down of curses upon one's enemy. And all of these types of psalms are actually penned by King David. And I think that's important. I'll show why later. That he is a very specific uh, representation 
of God as the king, and, and so it's important to see that these are coming from uh, David himself. And the question that I, that I want to just pose and, and answer even before we read this is this. Should the people of God today pray prayers of curse? And here's the answer. It's complicated. I could think of some examples in which it would be appropriate to pray a prayer like this, almost word for word against your enemies. For example, the Gestapo is coming systematically through your neighborhood, ripping people out of their homes. Maybe it's all right to pray that God would stop them. Pray that His judgment would come right now. However, we also, when we turn to the New Testament, and we see the words of Jesus, we see the progression of understanding of how we relate to our friends and to our enemies. We see this progression, and Jesus commanded that we are to love our enemies, and we are to pray for those who persecute us. So in that sense, this practice, this prayer of imprecation, this is probably not a practice that we continue on, at least explicitly. But I hope to show, I hope to help us consider today that even though we might not explicitly pray curses upon our enemies, that at the end of the day, the truth is that we are deep in our hearts, whether we say the words out loud or not, we are feeling these feelings. We are thinking these thoughts that we'll see today for our enemies. And so even as we don't speak these out loud, God knows that they're happening in our hearts. He knows that these are, in fact, prayers at times for curse upon our enemies. And so this psalm will show us how it will help us navigate these unavoidable feelings and thoughts, these curses that we, through our human nature, inevitably say, in a sense, towards our enemies, it will help us to know how to not be swallowed up by that anger, but to be freed from it, just as I believe King David is. So let's read the psalm together. So if you have a Bible, would you turn? The psalms are going to be pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. If you want to grab, there should be some in the seat back in front of you. If you want to take out your phone and follow along, it will be helpful to be able to follow along because we'll be jumping around a little bit. You could just Google Psalm 109. And as I read this today, I'm actually not going to read it in order, and that's on purpose, so don't think that I've missed a part. I'm going to read it in an order that I actually think will help us to understand what's going on a little bit better. So we're just going to start right there, Psalm 109 in verse 1. And and, and in verse 1, how many times have we all thought and prayed this prayer? It says this, Be not silent, O God, O God of my praise. Be not silent. He's crying out to God, Speak, God. Please speak. 
And when, what he's saying is not just speak words. When he's saying speak, he's saying act, God. Do something. Fix this problem. How many times have you prayed that? God, do not be silent anymore. Speak. Now is the time to act. And the big question of this psalm will be, when we ask God to speak, when we ask Him to act, will we trust that He both will speak and are we willing to trust in His answer? Or, Will we, in our impatience, try to speak for him? It's the big question of the psalm. Verse 2 says this. This is the reason why David needs God to speak. Why he needs him to take action. He says this, For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. Speaking against me with lying tongues, they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. We've all been there, right? People lying about us. People wrongly accusing us. People speaking words of hate about us personally or perhaps about our kind. You Christians, you Americans, you... Insert ethnicity, gender, profession, political class. People attacking us for no cause. Out of the blue. Where, where, where did that come from? You love people well and they don't reciprocate. And not only that, they don't even appreciate. But instead, they accuse you and they abuse your friendship. You've been there? And isn't this interesting? All the things that he's talking about are words. Nothing boils our blood more than words. Why is that? Well, you think of the election. I was thinking about this, how interesting it is in this last election. People say, well, could you, he did what? Or she did what? And that would get them boiling to a certain point. But then it's, he said what? She said what? You see, it's, it's almost like words have more power even than action. Isn't that interesting? You know, the old euphemism is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. The problem is that's not true. And in fact, if you read the Bible, the Bible will tell you that words have more power than anything. They have the power and the potential of the tongue, which God tells us is the most wicked and vicious of all evils. And I think that's true. And I think you see that here, David in all the ways that he has been hurt, he has been sinned against, it is the accuser. It is the power of words that has hurt the most. Now look at verses 22. We're going to jump past the next section. We'll come back to it. Verses 22 to 25. And what we'll see is what the power of these words have actually done to David. 
They've left him in really bad shape. Let's look at that. Verse 22 says this, For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through, fa- uh, through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn, and my accusers, when they see me, they wag their heads. He's beaten down. He says he's like a shadow of himself. He's the object of scorn. They wag their heads when they see him. Someone might be thinking, well, don't be so sensitive, David. Toughen up. Don't let them get to you. I want to stress something here. This is the man after God's own heart. To be a person of God, to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, does not require unconditional strength, but an acceptance of weakness mixed occasionally with seasons or moments of Spirit-inspired strength. I hope that encourages you today. Maybe you're weak. Maybe you feel like a shadow of yourself. You're just like King David. Maybe you're worn down. You're vulnerable. You feel like everyone is shaking their head at you. Maybe you feel flimsy. Well, you're no less God's now than you are when you are firm and strong. This is such an important truth to grasp as you walk with God. This is the hero of the Old Testament, King David. And he says, I'm like a shadow gone in the evening. So these words of the accusers, they've beaten him down. And what does he do? Well, he does what all the people of God should do. He cries to God for help. Verse 26, Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped with their own shame as in a cloak. Notice David's desperation, his dependence, his honesty. He knows he's in need. And he's not ashamed to cry that out. All things that we must learn to incorporate into our communication with God, into our relationship with God. We have to learn desperation, dependence, honesty. And now I want you to turn back and we'll look at the curses, starting in verse 6. Because when you are beaten down, when you are accused, when you are lied about, when you are misunderstood, when you are a shadow of yourself, this is what you will think and you will feel. This is what you will want God to do to your enemies. These are David's unfiltered and natural responses 
to the sin that has been committed against him. Now just a disclaimer, these, these are gnarly curses. We'll take a look at them after we read them. But this is how humans respond. It's important to understand. You don't have to stop being a human. This is what David says of his enemies. He prays to God. God, appoint a wicked man against him. Verse 6. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruit of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that wraps around him, like a belt that he put on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. That's in the Bible. And if you don't love the Psalms, you need to wake up. This is real life. This isn't a man faking spirituality. This is an expression of the raw human nature. And I'd even add particularly of the male. Heart, mind, and soul. And I want to show you why I say that. I want, to, I want to look at this hierarchy. I want you to see how this is playground politics at its realist. Okay? So pay attention to the escalation of these curses. The first thing he says is this. He says, I want an eye for an eye. That's our initial response. He says, I want you to have an accuser just like you've accused me. It's classic anger 101. I want you to experience what you've put me through. And then he says, you know what? And not only that, I pray that you get arrested, taken to court, and you're found guilty. This is always the second thing. I've got a great story about this. As most of my great stories, it starts with basketball. I'm playing basketball at the IMA at University of Washington. And I had a tendency sometimes, some of you have seen this come out on the volleyball court, I get a little bit competitive, and I was... I was checking this, this young man uh, pretty intensely, guarding him closely, closer than he wanted. I was, I was, I don't think he thought I would be very good. He looked at me, he took one look, and he said, I, this guy's not going to be very good, but turns out I was, you know, I was all right. And he didn't like that. Well, he comes dribbling down the court, 
this is a true story, just dribbling towards me just like you would normally, and then all of a sudden, in, the, in mid-dribble, he throws the ball at my face, I block the ball, and I, the next thing I look up, and he's right, and he just punches me square in the face. Well, I moved right past number one, eye for an eye, and I moved right to number two, like any good suburban grown kid would do. And I reported him to the officials. <laughs> I went straight to the IMA office, and I'd like, I'd like to uh, file a report, <laughs> and I'd like you to call the cops. <laughs> okay, so that's, I moved straight to number two. But that's usually how it goes. Now, I realized this gentleman would probably take me in a fight, and he had some friends with him that definitely, I didn't even have any friends with me at the time, but even if I had my friends, his friends could take my friends. So I moved right past eye for an eye, and I did not punch him back, but I walked right out the gym, and I ported it, reported him to the court, and I prayed, curses upon him, <laughs> that he would be found guilty, thrown in jail, and never come back to the IMA. Well, I saw him there the next week, and anyhow. <laughs> moved to number three. <laughs> no. Number three. I pray, I hope, that you lose your job. That's what happens. You ever done that? You have a boss? I pray that you lose your office. Then he moves to his children. May they be fatherless, which is like saying, may you be dead. And then to his wife, may you be a widow because you are dead. And then interestingly enough, he moves to his material possessions, that they would be seized that his cars, his guns, his boats, his bikes, his house would be taken from him. Now, interestingly, that comes after wife and kids. But remember, he's dealing with ungodly men. And I, I, I think, unfortunately, this is pretty true. Sadly enough that many natural men, this would be their hierarchy. Kids, wife, material possessions. And then he prays not only that, but that his legacy would be taken away. And then not only his legacy, but his father's legacy, his father's reputation. And then look at this, how this playground politics at its finest. The final curse is this. Yo mama. You see that? Nothing has changed in 3,000 years. The worst thing you could curse is still the worst thing you could curse today. Well, you talking about my mother? You do not talk about my mother. I will end you if you talk about my mother. This is so real. And it, and it might be slightly different for the females in the room. Maybe, maybe it's your father. Don't talk about my father like that. But for most men that I know, if you bring up their mom, it's on, like Donkey Kong. <laughs> I've seen this play out so many times growing up in the playground, on the court, in the back alley. Wait, what'd you say? Did you just bring my mother into it? You see how real and raw this is? And, and why I'm harping on this is because it shows you here that David leaves absolutely nothing out of his curse. He wants everything taken away, even this guy's mother. 
Nothing is beyond the curse of King David for his accusers. The other reason I harp on this, and I wanted to take a moment just for you to see how real and raw this is, it, maybe you've got a young man in your life, or an old man in your life, and he could care less about the Bible. He said, the Bible doesn't have anything for me. You know what I want you to do? I want you to pull out your Bible, and I said, can I read you one psalm? I want to read you Psalm 109. And I guarantee if you read this to him, he'll be like, that's in the Bible? I know what that feels like. Can I tell you the story about when somebody talked about my mom? And you know what? He might just keep reading. Because this is an example of how true and authentic to the human experience the Bible is. This isn't just some spiritual guy pretending to have all the answers. It's somebody who is in life. He's experienced real accusation and hurt and curse and he cries out to God for help. Now, it's clear that this fullest holds no bar curse, that it's honest, that it's unfiltered, and it's how many of us feel in response to being sinned against. So maybe you can relate. Maybe you've felt this in your heart. Maybe you've cried this out loud. Maybe you've talked like this to friends. But it's what it feels like to be so broken, especially by the sin of someone else. Now here's what's important. I want to, I want to make sure we understand that Every curse that David cries out against his accuser Every single one is 100% righteous. And the reason, it's because the, the curse fits the crime. And this isn't always the case, okay? So sometimes you'll have these same feelings, you'll, you'll think these same curses, and it might not be the case that it's righteous. But in David's case it is, and this is where I said I'd come back and tell you why, that King David is praying these prayers of cursing is important. Because King David is both a human being created in the image of God, and he's been sinned against. But he's also the anointed king of God's people. And so as the anointed king, as the highest representation of God on earth at this time, King David, when he sinned against God himself is also being sinned against. You accuse David and you accuse God. And that's important to understand. So this anger that David has that comes out in these curses, this is both a personal anger, but it's also a divine anger as the representative of God. That's important to understand because it helps us know 100% righteous, which is to say his anger is a righteous anger. And this is an important category for us to grab. This, this category of righteous anger this is an acceptable response to the experience of sin and evil in God's world. So it's not wrong to have righteous anger. In fact, that's what should happen when we feel like God is being sinned against. And at times when we are sinned against, when God's moral perfection, when His perfect purposes and plans are broken, when they are accused, we should feel righteous anger. Now sometimes when we feel this anger, it's righteous, but sometimes it's not. And so I, 
I just want to say this. It's important that we do the hard, introspective, and honest work of is this anger that I'm feeling, is this a righteous anger? Or is it unrighteous? Now, that's the first part. The righteousness of David's anger. Hopefully that helps us understand that these curses are coming from an acceptable heart. But that's not the end of the psalm or the lesson that I think the psalm is trying to teach us. Or this lesson about prayer that this psalm can teach us. So you could say it this way. Yes, if God were to listen to the cries of David and do what he has asked, that would be justifiable judgment. Does that make sense? So, so if God chooses to do what David has asked on his behalf, that would be justifiable because his curses are 100% righteous in that he has been sinned against and the wages of sin is judgment. Okay? But here is the crux of the entire psalm, okay? We skipped one verse on purpose and we're going to come back to it. This unlocks, I think, the power of this psalm. And it's verse 21. So look at it with me. Look very closely here. This psalm, or this verse, will expose David's heart. And it will expose the overpowering presence of the God of grace in that heart. And this will be how you can be both righteously anger and not fall into sin. Look at what it says. After all those curses, David stops and he says, but you... O God, my Lord, you deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. What's interesting here, I'll just share this if you didn't know this. If you look at the word Lord here, it's in lowercase. Other places, as in the verse before, Lord is in uppercase. And anytime you see the word Lord in the Old Testament in uppercase letters, That means it's referring to the personal name, Yahweh, the personal name of God. Lord here in lowercase means my master. So he's saying, oh God, my master, you deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Here's why that's so important. This verse is showing us, it's revealing to us that this man, this cursing angry man is still being led and directed by the power of the Holy Spirit even as he pens these words. Because we see in him giving himself over to his master that he is working out the gospel of grace right here in the middle of the psalm. And I think he's doing it in three ways. The first way is this. He's saying, not my will be done, God, but your will. David's anger is righteous, but he never, in any of his psalms of curse, presumes to take vindication into his own hands. He is a man of intense faith, and he trusts that God will judge, and that judgment is God's alone. We see this in the narrative accounts of David's life. He has been anointed king by Samuel, and yet there's another king who is holding the throne. 
And David, on at least two occasions, probably more, had chances to kill Saul, King Saul, knowing that God had already anointed David as the king, but he doesn't take that opportunity. Why? Because he trusts God's timing, and he trusts God's judgment, and he waits. He waits for the word of the Lord. So even though you might be right, even though David might be right to desire judgment against evil and sin, it is always wrong to force God's hand or to take into your own hands what is God's. That's the gospel at work in the life of David. You could say it this way. Righteous anger acted upon equals unrighteous judgment. Righteous anger prayed about leaves room for the righteous judgment of God to work itself into the situation. This is one of the ways this psalm teaches us how to pray and teaches us the importance of prayer. Because when we feel righteous or even unrighteous anger, when we feel our blood boiling and we know that judgment is required or we at least feel like it is, here's what we do. We pray it out. We pray it out of our hearts. We give it to God and we trust Him to judge. Give it to God. Say, God, you deal with it on my behalf. Because if we hold it in, even if it's righteous anger, I guarantee you it will eventually come out as unrighteous judgment, as unrighteous action. Now, this doesn't, of course, mean that you never take action, but you wait for God to speak, and maybe he'll ask you to take action, but you don't take it into your own hands. You see this humility, this patience. David's saying, in your timing, not mine. For your glory, not mine. The second thing this shows us is that the second way the gospel sort of infuses David's response is this, that when he invokes God's name, this is actually an act of love. It's an act of love because God's name is equal to his character and his reputation. So when he says, for your name's sake, I think it's easy to miss this at first glance, but when he says that, what he's actually saying, and maybe David doesn't even realize that, he just knows this is the right way to act, but, but when he transcends his feelings and his anger and he invokes the name of the God of grace and mercy, he is opening up God's love and care for his enemy because he knows that God is a God of mercy. The best example of this is Jonah. If you've read the book of Jonah, it's not about a whale. It's about a man who knows the name of God, knows the character of God. And so when God tells him to go to the Ninevites and tell them to repent, he knows that if he does, some of them might repent. So you know what he does? He goes as far away as he can so that they don't know about the God of grace and mercy and redemption. And he gets on a boat to get as far away from doing his mission to tell them about God's grace and mercy and redemption because he doesn't want them 
to have it. (laughs) But David doesn't do that. He says, God, for your name's sake. That's an act of love. Because he knows who God is. The uninspired prayer would seek to keep God's character out of it. But when we invoke God's name, his character, his reputation, it opens the door for grace, mercy, redemption. Now, the final thing that's happening here is that David's prayer opens the door for Christ. I don't know if, if you've, uh, I've mentioned this before, there's a podcast called Invisibilia. And um, it's a great podcast because basically at the end of every episode, uh, they're usually baffled. Well, this is the way it is, but we don't really <laughs> know what to do next. And you can always insert at the end of every episode the grace of God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That answers every question. And this is actually, this episode I'm going to tell you about here is no different. Um, they talk about this anthropologist who in the 1960s went to the Philippines uh, to study a tribe that was known for its beheading. And he discovers an emotion that he's never heard about. He's learning their language and he's, and he's learning to communicate with them and he kind of, he, he finds all these emotions that are sort of one for one uh, to English. But he doesn't find a one for one to this emotion called ligate. Uh, this is the word they use. And at first he thinks it's talking about energy and productivity. And, and, and later he finds out that actually this is the emotion that leads to the beheading. That, that it's, like, it's like this like electricity that goes into the people of these tribes. Usually when, when something traumatic, tragic happens, somebody dies, usually in an unrighteous way. And they are filled with this thing called ligate. And it drives them to seek the head of someone to release all of this anger and energy that they have from the grief. Well, what does that sound like? Sounds exactly like what David's going through. Except the gospel of grace says this. When the unexplainable happens, when you've been sinned against, when you have righteous anger, you don't go take the head of someone else because somebody's already died for that head. Jesus Christ has already taken the judgment for that sin. And that God of the New Testament, the gospel of grace, is the same God of the Old Testament. And when we feel ligate, when we feel that energy that cannot be released, what we need to do is what David does, and we cry out to God, this is what I'd want to happen, but you, you are the God of judgment. You do what you want to do. And what God wanted to do is to pour all judgment, all curse, upon his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what he did. He pours it on Christ through the cross. And then he says, whoever accepts Jesus Christ through faith is now free 
from all that righteous anger, all those righteous curses, all that righteous judgment through the blood of Jesus. Do you see that? And I don't know how much of that David knows except he knows the character and the reputation of this God of grace. And he knows that this is exactly what God did for him. That he was due the righteous rage of God, but God gave him something else instead. Relationship, forgiveness, love. And we too, when we feel that ligate, when we feel like nothing can relieve the anger that's been stirred up in us, we too remember what Christ has done for us. We remember that we too were sons and daughters of judgment and God chose to forgive us. And so when we feel, we cry it out, I think it's okay. This is how I feel, God, but not my will be done, your will be done. And we remember what God's will usually is. Repentance, and redemption through the blood of Jesus and through the resurrection. I want you to look at these last two verses, verses 30 and 31. It says this, With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise Him in the midst of the throng, for He stands at my right hand, at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Remember the opening lines of the psalm. Be not silent, O my God. In the economy of God, there's multiple players. And they all have something to say. The sinner chooses to use their mouth to condemn others, condemn them to death, and in turn they damn themselves. David, by the end of the psalm, has chosen to use his mouth to give thanks to God, to praise his name in the assembly of the people. And God uses his mouth to speak righteous judgment on his terms, in his timing, for his glory. That's the way the economy of God works. So the next time, or maybe you're there right now, when you're feeling this sort of anger, just know that God doesn't want you to burn unendingly with anger towards your enemy. He doesn't want you to take judgment into your own hands. He doesn't want you to ignore or accept evil and sin. Instead, He wants you to love what He loves, hate what He hates, and trust Him unconditionally to deal with it. So how will you speak this week, this month, this year? How will you use your mouth? Maybe you want to change what you're saying. 
The Bible tells us in Romans 10, the right word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. God, we pray that we would learn to use our mouth in the right way. To cry out and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that You've raised Him from the dead. And that in doing so, by taking that word of faith and making that the way we use our mouth, that we too would not take judgment into our own hands, but that we would fully trust You. That we would remember the cross of Christ that You have poured out all curse and judgment on Your Son, and that whoever accepts with their mouth that He is Lord will receive forgiveness and will escape the righteous judgment that's due all sin. God, we praise You and we thank You. Publicly, we thank You that You have done that for us. We did not deserve it. It is a free gift. And God, we pray for our enemies for those who boil our blood, those who we feel like are beyond repentance, God, we pray for them too, that they would turn and see Jesus Christ and confess with their mouth that He is Lord and Savior. And God, that that relationship might be resurrected through the forgiveness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.